Well, I went to school, college, out in Indiana. Um, and shortly after graduating from there, I returned home uh, out to Washington State and was um, helping out uh, with our youth group at our church there. And during one of the summers I was back, we were taking the youth group out on a retreat uh, out to Long Beach, Washington, which, as the name suggests, it's a very long beach. Um, but one of the classic games that we like to play on these retreats, uh, classic youth group game, is capture the flag, right? And this one we were doing with a couple twists, um, because we weren't playing on a field during the day, we were playing at night on the beach, and we were going to go out and have a big bonfire afterwards and have a great time. My buddy Ryan and I, who's the, he's the youth pastor there, uh, we were trying to figure out how are we going to get all the firewood onto the beach for this big bonfire that we want to have. And so I came up with the brilliant idea of, well, I'll take my little CRV, we'll load it full of wood, and we'll drive out onto the beach. Well, the problem with that is it's about 10.30 at night, um, and if you know northwest coastal beaches, this is not sunny California, right? It's cold, it's dark, it's wet, um, and as is common during that time, the fog was rolling in thick. And so we're headed out, driving along the beach, and we kind of go over a few little bumps, and here's some splashing water, and I go, ah, all right, it's just one of the, you know, the little streams that run down, runs down the beach, and we'll be all right, we'll keep going. So we kept going. A couple minutes later, and I, I can't see 10 feet in front of me. Fog is just super thick. Uh, a couple minutes later, the car dives into about four feet of water. And my buddy Ryan is saying, keep going, push it, got it, we'll, we'll make it through. No, we were not making it through. Lights were flickering, the engine's dying. Um, and then we realized we have to get out of this car, uh, which can be tricky in water. Um, but thankfully, we were able to get the doors open uh, and hop out of the car. And as we get out, we look at the beach, and we're about 100 feet into the ocean. <laughs> Somehow, we had worked our way out onto this little spit of sand and then just dropped straight into the ocean. And so we trudge back to the beach, and it, it's cold. I'm freezing. My adrenaline is pumping so hard and my hands are shaking like crazy. And we're trying to figure out what to do, and we finally decide, well, we have no idea what to do, so we're just going to call 911. And I'm trying to push the buttons, but I can't push them because my hands are shaking so bad. Eventually, I think I had Ryan dial 911 for me so we could call, and they gave us the number of a, of a tow truck company to come out there and do that, and Turns out, the car, by the time they got done getting the car out, it was about 160 feet into the ocean, because uh, the tide had been coming in this whole time, and the car was about underwater when they finally got it out. And so during this, I'm, I'm calling my parents, trying to make sure insurance is going to cover the tow, because it's like a $1,000 tow to pull it out of the ocean. And I call my mom, and I'm waking her up, and she answers the phone, and I go, Mom... I drove my car into the ocean. <laughs> and her response is, of course, wait, you what? I, I drove my car into the ocean. And so we get this all figured out. The car gets pulled out. But I'm standing there on the beach, and the weight of what has just happened kind of rolls over me. 
At this point, capture the flag was off. We weren't doing that anymore. And so I had ruined the youth group's night. And not only that, but I totally destroyed the car that my parents had so graciously bought me. And in this story, I didn't sin, but I felt terrible for the harm that I had caused both the youth group and my parents. And how often do we feel this great weight of our bad choices, but we just tend to shrug off sin? Do we actually feel the weight of our sin? Are we truly convicted by sin? And so, as we continue in the Apostles' Creed this week with the phrase, the forgiveness of sins, uh, we're actually going to work backwards, and we're going to first look at sin. And we're going to look at the seriousness of sin. So in order to paint a true picture of forgiveness and really understand our need for it, we have to first understand sin. We first have to paint the black backdrop of sin against which we can paint the brilliant light of Christ. And so sin is described in scripture in many ways, from lawlessness to missing the mark, Uh, to iniquity, which is lack of integrity, or to transgression. And all these terms portray an aspect of sin, but don't necessarily capture it in its entirety. And so this morning, we're going to seek to understand it holistically. As we begin to define sin, the first thought that probably comes to your mind is the breaking of God's law. God is holy, And this is spelled out in the Mosaic Law, where God is setting apart a people in the nation of Israel who are to be holy as he is holy. When we fail to do what God has commanded in this law, we sin and are considered guilty before a just God. Now, there are two different ways that we sin. Uh, There are sins of commission, which is what we do, and there are also sins of omission, which is what we fail to do. James 5.17 teaches us this. It says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And sin is also not just actions, but sin can be attitudes as well. Jesus describes this in the Sermon on the Mount when he equates hating our brother in our hearts to physically murdering him. There is sneaky sin in our hearts that we may not even know about yet. And so with this foundation laid, uh, we're going to take a look at four different aspects of sin uh, that are really important for us to understand and greatly affect our life with God. Uh, So turn to Romans 3, starting in verse 10. And we're going to skip around in Scripture a bunch this morning. Uh, but I'll have you turn to a couple key passages that we're going to kind of camp in. Uh, So Romans 3, verse 10, and we'll take a look at what Paul teaches on sin. He says, There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And skipping down to verse 23, Paul continues, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so our first point is this, that sin is universal. No one is sinless, right? Every person in the history of creation, except for Jesus, of course, was or is sinful. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in this passage. He says, all have sinned. There is no one who does good. And he hits it again, not even one. And John continues this theme in 1 John 1, starting in verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So not only is everyone sinful, but there is no one who at their core is basically good who would, or who would turn to God of their own accord. So highlighting again what Paul says in Romans 3.11, there is no one who seeks God. And he continues in verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is all of our starting point in life. Our default position is sinners separated from God because of our sin. And without the work of God in us, we would not on our own choose to follow him. You know, I'm a, I'm a Milwaukee tool guy. Anybody else here Milwaukee tool guy? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, so when I go into Home Depot these days to buy my 37th Milwaukee tool, it, I'm kidding, it's not that many, uh, but let's not count. I'm pretty sure I still have less than Carlin does, so I don't feel too bad. Um, but I go into Home Depot, I get to the Milwaukee tool section, and they've got the whole shelf caged off um, and padlocked to the shelf. So you can't even get to the boxes to get the tool that you want. And then around each individual box is this alarmed cable thing uh, that'll go off if you try and walk out of the store with it or take it apart or whatever. And then um, attached to all the cables that are around each individual box is another alarmed cable that connects all of them. And so to buy a tool, Milwaukee tool at Home Depot, you have to find a non-existent Home Depot employee who may or may not have the key because somebody else probably took it with them. And then they have to get through three different lock systems. And then they don't just give you the tool, they take it to the register themselves so that you can finally buy your Milwaukee tool. And it's frustrating. Do you know why they do this? They do it because people steal this stuff, right? It's because people are sinful, and we feel that. And this actually leads to our second point, that sin is pervasive. 
This is sometimes referred to as total depravity. Uh, and the doctrine is commonly misunderstood to mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be. That at every decision point, we will make the most sinful choice. Uh, but that's really not the case. Instead, the doctrine of total depravity teaches us that sin has infected every part of us. It influences our relationships, the way we work, our thoughts, our sexual lives, and even our speech, the way we talk to one another. There's not a single part of us that escapes the effects of sin. And while we are not as sinful as we possibly could be, Jeremiah 17.9 teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So not only are we sinful by choice because of our actions and attitudes, but we are also by nature sinful. David describes this in Psalm 51.5. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. As Rosaria Butterfield puts it, our sin natures deceive us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. And we, of course, are all tempted to sin, right? And we all differ in the ways we are tempted. And we are daily assaulted by many of these temptations. Whether it's that third piece of cake to cover over the terrible day we had at work. Or maybe it's coveting that new fly reel that Ross just came out with. Yeah, we, we know who that one's for. <laughs> or we might even think like the self-righteous Pharisee. We see that mom in the store and we think, thank you God that I'm not like that mom who just shamed her kid in front of the entire store. As again, Rosaria Butterfield says it, my choice sins know my name and address. So our third point is this, that sin breaks relationship. If we jump all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, God has created this good world, and in it live his very good creatures, humans. This world is not corrupted by sin, and God walks in the Garden of Eden with his people. There's peace, there's shalom. The created world and everything in it, and God's relationship with his people is whole. But then we know what happens next, right? Adam and Eve, they choose to disobey God, and shalom is fractured. Sin and death enter the world, and there's separation between God and man. This separation is actually visually portrayed in how God designed both the tabernacle and the Jerusalem temple in Exodus 26. And between this holy place and the most holy place, which was God's dwelling place, hung a massive curtain that separated God from his people. God cannot be in the presence of sin, and so the dwelling place of God must be separated from that which is sinful. We are separated from God by our sin. Relationship is broken, and we cannot enter into his presence. 
And Cornelius Plattinger Jr. describes it like this. He says, sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. And then ultimately, sin results in judgment and death. As Pastor Eric preached a couple weeks ago, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. The wrath of God will be poured out for sin on those who are not covered by Christ. This is the good work of a just and holy God. But in addition to being under judgment, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, and we all know this verse, right? That the wages of sin is death. So just as a construction worker gets a paycheck for framing a wall or pouring some concrete, so God promises to repay us according to what we have done, according to our sin. And the payment that sin deserves is death. Paul describes this more elaborately in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And go ahead and turn there. We're going to camp here for a bit. I'm also going to read this from the ESV uh, because I like the way they phrase this a little better, and you'll see more of that in a little bit here. Uh, so Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Physical death was brought into the world at the fall and is now the fate of us all. Death in this case, though, also means spiritual or relational death. For those under this condemnation... Uh, they will live eternally separated from God, who is the light of the world and the giver of life, both spiritually and physically. So take a second and just imagine this world without God. A world without God's goodness, his grace, the hope of a future with him. A world without the things God graciously gives all mankind, like the beauty of creation. You see the mountains right out there. The sweetness of music, like what we've already heard this morning. Or the great taste of coffee in the morning. One of my favorites. What would a world be like without any of this? What you're imagining right now is hell. Hell is primarily a place without God. Thankfully, though, the story doesn't end there. The next two words in Ephesians 2.4 are my favorite two words in the entire Bible. And again, this is from the ESV. It says, but God... 
We were dead in our sin, by nature, children of wrath. But God, God has intervened to bridge this gap. And so there is good news. And that is the good news of forgiveness. There are many ways in Scripture, uh, there are many ways Scripture describes how God deals with us in relation to our sin. These great concepts like justification, atonement, redemption, and reconciliation are all used to describe aspects of the process of God forgiving our sins. At the core of all of these, though, is the idea that God does not treat us or relate to us as our sins deserve. Instead, he moves towards us in love and mercy. Again, Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. As we already discussed, we deserve God's judgment and wrath for our sin and an eternity separated from him. But in his grace and mercy, God does not treat us this way. Instead, he covers our sin He removes its debt from our record. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and he restores us to himself. In short, God forgives us. But the question is, how does a holy and just God do this? On what basis does God forgive our sins? And the answer is that God forgives you and me based solely on the work of his son. It is only by the work of Jesus and nothing else. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death and he rose from the grave so that we can be reconciled to God. A holy and just God can forgive sin because that sin has been paid for. Jesus was the sacrifice of infinite worth who bore our sins on his body on the cross. We were bought with a price, and that price is the precious blood of Jesus. And therefore, we can say with joy with David in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And so our first point on forgiveness is this. Unlike sin, which is universal, forgiveness is actually conditional. The New Testament repeatedly calls people to repent and believe to receive forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In order to receive the salvation that God has offered, we must confess our sin, repent, and believe. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the sin of all mankind for all of history. 
but we have to appropriate that for ourselves by repentance and faith. Now, this means a few things. First, we are agreeing with God that our sin is actually sin and that we have committed it. Second, we're accepting the invitation of God to repent by actively turning away from sin and towards him. And third, we're believing that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient to cleanse us from our sin and clothe us in his righteousness. And this cleansing and clothing is the next part of forgiveness and our second point here, that forgiveness is transactional. There we go. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 describes this transaction. It says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Our sin is this debt against us. We have broken God's perfect and holy standard. The righteous judge has found us guilty. But at the cross, God canceled the charge of that debt, not by looking the other way or sweeping it under the rug, but by applying that charge to Jesus. The full weight of God's wrath for all the sin of history came down on Jesus at the cross. You know, one thing I find fascinating about engineering um, is something that engineers do called, um, they design what's called a sacrificial part. Um, and so in a piece of equipment that they're designing, uh, there's probably a part in there that's pretty valuable, pretty hard to replace. And so to protect it, they'll design around it the sacrificial, the sacrificial part. And so when enough weight or stress or force comes against that piece of equipment, Instead of this valuable, hard-to-replace part breaking, the sacrificial part will break instead. I think of this in car design, right? In cars, you've got what are called crumple zones. And so when you get into an accident, the car is designed so that this crumple zone collapses and absorbs a lot of the energy of the wreck, and so that energy isn't distributed to the passengers of the car. Those crumple zones are a sacrificial part that saves you from further injury. And so in a similar way, Jesus is our sacrificial part. We would be crushed by the weight of God's wrath for sin. It's a price that we could never pay. Instead, Jesus steps in, though, in our place and pays that price for us. He is our sacrificial part. And because Jesus lived a perfect life, we now receive his perfect record instead of our own sinful record. In this transaction, our sin is expunged at the cross, our slate wiped clean, and Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us if we would only appropriate it through repentance and belief. D.A. Carson says this so well. He says, forgiveness is possible only because there has been a real offense and 
a real sacrifice to offset that offense. So more than simply being this judicial transaction, though, forgiveness also restores the relationship between God and us that was broken by our sin. And so our third point is that forgiveness is relational. As we discussed earlier, sin has broken our relationship with God. And here's the beauty of forgiveness, though. In Christ, God seeks to restore us to relationship with himself. There's a picture of this when Christ died on the cross. That curtain that was hanging in the temple, separating God from his people, it was torn in two. Because of the cross, God rips that curtain up and invites us into his presence. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 describes this. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. God's forgiveness of sin allows us to be in confident relationship with him. We don't have to be afraid or anxious or worried or nervous. We don't have to hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. God has washed us clean. He's restored our relationship with him, and he invites us to come to him as children going to our loving father. David writes beautifully about God's heart toward us in Psalm 103. He says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In other words, God loves to forgive you. Dane Ortland says it like this. He says, the posture most natural to him, speaking of Jesus, is not a pointed finger, but open arms. God does not love to accuse you, but instead he loves to forgive you. It is out of love that God sent Jesus to the cross. Love for you. God does not desire for you to perish, but instead wants you to spend eternity with him if only you would accept his offer of forgiveness. God loves to forgive us. Now, to wrap up this morning, I have two questions for you. First, for those of you who might not call yourselves a Christian, you might be here exploring the faith, uh, you might be skeptical, you might be just checking out what this is all about. The question is this, do you know this? I think we can all agree that we're not perfect people, right? Right? And because of that, outside of the work of Christ, the Bible says that you stand condemned to God's judgment. And this is not to scare you or to judge you. 
But I would be remiss as a pastor and I would not be faithful to what God's word teaches if I did not lovingly warn you. This is what is coming for you if you do not repent and believe. Now maybe you're here this morning and you would call yourself a Christian. But perhaps no one outside of this building on a Sunday morning would ever see that or even think that about you. You come to church on Sundays, but the rest of the week your life is indistinguishable from your atheist coworker. There's sin in your life that you just don't care about, you don't care to deal with it, and frankly, you just don't think it matters. Does your life reflect what you say you believe? If it doesn't, then you have some hard questions to address before the Lord. For all of us, though, God offers forgiveness for our sin and an opportunity to experience the intimate love of the God who created us fearfully and wonderfully, who knows us inside and out, and who desires that we would spend eternity with him. Now, my second question. For those of you that do know Christ as your Savior and follow him, is this. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this in the deepest corners of your heart? Now, you may think that's a strange question because, of course, you believe this, right? You're a Christian, your inheritance in heaven is sealed. But here's why I ask this. Often as believers, while intellectually sure, we know that our sins are forgiven, we don't always live from that reality. Do we still have this nagging feeling that God is just not quite happy with us? That he's looking down on us all too ready to point out the next time we yell at our kids or say something unkind to our spouse, or gossip about that coworker that we just really don't like. Do we, as the people of God, experience the forgiveness of God in our day-to-day life? Do we experience that full assurance of faith? Tozer writes that, We do God more honor by believing what he has said about himself and having the courage to come boldly to the throne of grace than by hiding in self-conscious humility among the trees of the garden. Rest from your striving to make yourself look good enough to God, to make yourself lovable. He already loves you perfectly. He can't love you any less, and he can't love you any more. Hebrews 12 talks about how it was for the joy set before him that Jesus went to the cross. What joy? It's the joy of forgiving you and me of our sin. It is God's joy to delight in us the way a good and loving father delights in his children. The heart of God for you 
is not to point out where you've screwed up once again, but instead is to wrap you in his loving embrace and call you his forgiven child. Well, after I drove my little CRV into the ocean, uh, we headed back to the camp, uh, and my, man, my gut was just in the tightest knot. And the weight of what had happened was just hanging over me. And while we've talked a lot about the, transa- the transactional nature of sin and forgiveness, and this certainly wasn't that, Uh, there was a relational tension there that needed to be addressed. And so I got back. I apologized to to the youth group for costing them their night. And it was the sweetest moment. Because they weren't mad at me. They didn't begrudge me. But instead they offered forgiveness. And it was then that that knot started to loosen and that weight started to lift from my shoulders. It was such a relief. I got home a few days later. My parents, instead of condemning me, offered more love and forgiveness. And that knot further loosened and that weight became even lighter. Sin wrecked our relationship with God. And we feel that tension, that weight. But by God's grace, through the work of Jesus, that relationship is restored. We can rest with full assurance that our sins are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are sinners deeply and thoroughly. And we confess that we are in desperate need of a Savior. God, thank you for providing that Savior in the person and work of Jesus. Thank you that we can rest knowing our sins are forgiven. That you love us perfectly and you delight in us as your children. In Jesus' name.